Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief for February 18th, 2024. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. I'm going to be uh, doing some stories from Nova Scotia as well as uh, a couple of national stories this week. I'm going to start off with a discussion of the election interference inquiry that's taking place. It started uh, a couple of weeks ago in Ottawa and some of the national security concerns that have been raised and how those uh, might be addressed by uh, Justice Hogue, who's running the inquiry. And then I'm going to talk about a few Nova Scotia cases, two that have been uh, appealed, two cases under appeal. One is uh, Kayla Borden, an appeal of the Nova Scotia Police Board ruling, uh, rejecting her claim, and that's gone on to judicial review. So I'll talk about the result of that. Uh, that was in the news this week. Another one that was in the news, claim out of Port Hawkesbury is Fenwick McIntosh appeal uh, that was rejected uh, by the uh, Nova Scotia Court of Appeal. Uh, talk about him uh, trying to litigate against the uh, victims of his uh, sexual assault uh, crimes, uh, historic crimes. And another uh, Nova Scotia case that's uh, in the news this week was a claim involving a former uh, candidate uh, for the PC candidate and employee of the uh, government, political employee, uh, Mar uh, Nargis Demolitor, and an individual that she accused of impersonating her and posting on her Twitter account against her wishes has now been charged criminally with uh, impersonation or personation is the uh, criminal claim. Let's talk about that. And then finally, uh, just an update on this uh, situation, litigation out in Saskatchewan on the school pronoun uh, issue out there. So uh, that there was a decision from uh, Justice McGaugh, who's been uh, the, the judge handling uh, this litigation between a group called UR Pride and the Saskatchewan provincial government. So finish off with that. A couple of, uh, I guess, programming updates or announcements. One is that there's got, not going to be a Sunday night show uh, this week. Got word from uh, Jordan Bonaparte that he's in Toronto and doesn't have the setup up there to uh, to manage the show with uh, Paul Palango and I. They don't have good Wi-Fi in Toronto, apparently, so uh, that'll be, there'll be no show this, uh, this week, no, uh, tonight, but uh, next week we'll be uh, back, back with the Sunday night show, the regular show. The other thing is uh, keep an eye out uh, tomorrow morning, Monday, the holiday Monday. I hope everybody, by the way, is enjoying the holiday weekend, a uh, long weekend. Uh, they put out a little short video tomorrow morning, uh, so keep an eye out for that as well. All right, so the election interference inquiry. Uh, this uh, just... In brief, is an inquiry into the efforts from uh, government or non-governmental actors from Russia, China, and India, among others, to interfere with elections in Canada. Often, it's uh, nomination battles where you know busloads of homogeneous-looking uh, individuals will show up and vote for one particular candidate. Uh, allegations that that's being coordinated by uh, foreign state actors and other kinds of many different kinds of allegations so 
issue that's come up. So there's been one week of hearings in this, and it's been this is the election interference inquiry that was originally going to be done under the guidance of former Governor General and Special Rapporteur David Johnston, now being done by uh, Justice Marie Jose Hogue. And the issue that's coming up is how is this inquiry going to deal with top secret information? This is uh, information gathered by CSIS, other intelligence sources. Well, originally what has taken place here was that they had a sample of 13 documents that were given, saying, all right, CSIS, show us what you're going to do. Uh, and CSIS came back with documents that were heavily redacted and took... Uh, like 200 hours in, you know, of effort to deal with these 13 documents. And so uh, that was determined to be too, well, too, my, too many redactions and too slow of a process to be an overall, I guess, guide for, for the inquiry. So what they're going to do now is that Justice Hogue is going to be able to see all information and she's going to be able to challenge any any efforts or any submissions by CSIS or by the federal government to redact, to withhold any information from the public. And this is a challenge, right, because part of what has to happen during an inquiry is to engender confidence in the process, but at the same time not reveal anything that's sensitive, secret information that uh, might you know, harm our international relationships or ongoing investigations, whatever the case may be. So Justice Hogue is going to be able to see all the information and challenge any attempts to keep things secret. And their terms of reference allow her pretty wide latitude in that. Now what's happened in other inquiries, and there's two in particular, the Mahar Arar inquiry and the Air India bombing inquiry. In both cases, there were similar challenges because there was national security information that the government was seeking to withhold and the uh, commissioner in each of those cases was able to see everything and challenge the uh, initial determinations from the government. And so in both cases, there were then efforts from the government to apply to court and say, well, no, these cannot be disclosed. Well, each time that happens, there's a court application, you know, it can take weeks, sometimes months, to have something like that heard, and so it really slows down a process. This is a, you know, an inquiry that's supposed to have an interim report in May, uh, and also a, a final report before the end of the year. So any such challenges uh, that will delay the inquiry are not going to be, uh, not going to be well received. Now, uh, so we're going to see. The other uh, thing that Justice Hogue is able to do is if there's items where specific information she agrees is able to be kept uh, from the public, then CSIS is to provide her with summary documents saying what's in those documents that are being withheld, here's what they contain, and then Justice Hogue needs to sign off on the summary to say, yes, that is an accurate reflection of what's been withheld. So there's you can expect that what will be happening here are vigorous negotiations behind the scenes uh, to, you know, if, if information, okay, if you're not going to provide the specific information, then the summary that 
is a replacement for that secret information has to be um, you know pretty thorough uh, you know a, a strong document that will you know serve the same purpose as what the original information would have done so we'll see we'll keep an eye on that and see if there's going to be any uh, challenges to uh, Justice Hogue's determinations in that regard uh, but she does, this is one of the benefits of having a judge rather than a special rapporteur is that the judge has more tools at their disposal to order things rather and use the legislation that's at their disposal to make orders rather than uh, recommendations that may be ignored. All right. So we'll watch, uh, we'll watch for that and see if, uh, if the government, you know, the, on the government side, anytime they make a challenge to information, there's always going to be the question of whether they're doing it out of genuine concern that relationships, ongoing investigations will be harmed, or whether they're doing it just to avoid having the government look bad by the information being revealed. All right, so that's, uh, we'll keep an eye out for the election interference inquiry as that proceeds along. All right, I'm going to switch uh, to Nova, three Nova Scotia cases before turning back to, uh, to uh, the Saskatchewan case. Uh, Kayla Borden appeal. Kayla Borden, uh, young African Nova Scotian uh, woman who was pulled over by the police in July of 2020 and arrested. So the circumstances were the police, the Halifax Regional Police, uh, one officer had been uh, chasing a uh, speeding car, suspected DUI, and had to, was advised, was ordered to pull off the chase because it was going too fast. But put out an alert over a certain vehicle, a dark Pontiac with, uh, I think, a light out or something. Well, another officer sees Miss Borden's car with the running lights on, looked like it might have matched the description, pulls over the car, uh, decides on the way to the door that he's going to arrest her and without having seen her and then uh, arrests her another officer comes along she's detained for less than you know a minute the other officer comes along says nope that's not the driver that doesn't match, match the description all right sorry miss borden off you go well uh, she alleged that that was uh, she was arrested and pulled over based on uh, racial profiling by the halifax regional police Halifax Police Review Board ruled that that was not the case and made a, a lengthy decision on that basis, basically because the officer had decided in advance and that there was a reasonable you know, reason why that they thought that was the car. It was in the same area. It matched uh, some of the identifying markers of the vehicle itself. But there were six days of hearings to determine all of this. Uh, and in the police review board decision, they said it was unfortunate that despite having heard the evidence to the contrary, Miss Borden maintained her position that the arrest was racially motivated. All right. And so this was appealed to the Supreme Court, and Justice Denise Boudreaux issued a decision this week affirming the police review board ruling. Now, it's not a hearing de novo. It's a, you don't, they don't do the hearing over again. She examines the police review board decision, 
says, well, is it within their expertise? Did they make a decision? Is the decision reasonable? Uh, and all of those things. It's not a, they don't get fresh evidence heard and they don't do the hearing over again. It's an examination of the hearing. But Justice Boudreau did say that, in particular, that comment about it being unfortunate that, you know, despite the strong, clear evidence that this was not the case, that Ms. Borden maintained the position that, she's, that it was racially motivated, Justice Boudreau says there was nothing unreasonable in that comment from the Police Review Board. So, uh, again, agreeing with that. I was curious about uh, who or why this was, uh, claim was being pursued, and I see the lawyer for Ms. Borden is Asaf Rashid, who was a lawyer called in called to the bar in 2021, so just uh, two, two and a half years into practice. He, uh, on his website, has lots of photos. He, he does uh, uh, prison advocacy law, human rights stuff he's out uh, you know he's photos of him speaking at protests and such uh, trying to I think make a name in that field and this I think was an effort to further that reputation uh, but uh, I would say that that is was not a good case to take on uh, if that was his goal uh, this one is a clear uh, a clear rebuke I think I would say from the court and um, so the, hopefully that'll be the end of that. All right, uh, so that was Kayla Borden's appeal. You know, certainly there is uh, cases of racism in the police forces. That wasn't one of them. All right. Fenwick McIntosh, longtime uh, criminal uh, defendant and now uh, civil litigation defendant as well. Fenwick McIntosh was convicted of uh, multiple counts of sexual assault dating back, you know, historical sexual assault cases out of Port Hawkesbury. Uh, was, there were some issues timing-wise with the criminal uh, convictions, criminal cases. There were delays, and the delays were laid on the Crown and the Court. And so, ultimately, the Court of Appeal, Nova Scotia Court of Appeal, throughout the convictions, and that was affirmed by the Supreme Court of Canada. Nevertheless, the, uh, the victims, the, uh, the victims from Fenwick McIntosh, uh, you know, and he was, like I say, he was convicted, the, the substantive uh, criminal charges he was convicted of, but uh, because he appealed on the basis that there was so, such delay in bringing the charges forward. So the victims uh, sued him in, in civil uh, court. The lawsuit was filed in December of 2019. And this was following a, an amendment to legislation. So normally the Limitations of Actions Act would say that you need to, well, it used to be six years, uh, now it's two years. You have to make a claim within two years. But that, law, that legislation was changed to, uh, for sexual battery cases so that there would be no limitation. You can sue, you can go back and sue, uh, you know, whether it's historical or, or recent. Uh, McIntosh filed his defense on his own, self-represented in February of 2020, uh, sorry, February of 2020, so just a couple of months after the original claim was filed. 
but then made a motion in January of 2022, when he was now represented by counsel, represented by uh, counsel from Cox Palmer, uh, Michelle Kelly, who's a you know, well-regarded, uh, very busy litigator, no doubt a very expensive litigator, now uh, you know, amending a claim, taking this to the Court of Appeal, uh, very expensive litigation. I'm wondering how uh, Fenwick McIntosh still has the the means to uh, continue funding uh, these defenses and litigations, especially in this case. Or this this was this case before the Court of Appeal was uh, a long shot. So how does one have the money to fund you know tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees for a long shot uh, defense? guess uh, if it worked it was going to be very helpful but anyways it wasn't going to shut down the litigation what he was trying to do what Macintosh was trying to do was amend his defense to counter sue against the claimants for defamation saying that when he, they alleged that he had committed these offenses they spoke to the police they spoke to the media they spoke to politicians and said Macintosh did these things. Well, Macintosh is saying, I didn't do those things, and you've defamed me by saying so. All right, well, here's how the time uh, limitation issue works. There's no limitation on sexual battery claim. There is still a limitation on the defamation side of it. So there's a two-year limit on when that claim can be made. And Justice Patrick Murray from... Uh, Supreme Court of Nova Scotia gave a you know a thorough decision on the timing issue to say no you cannot make that counterclaim uh, might have been able to make it in your defense but now it's you know multiple years later the alleged defamatory statements were made during the original criminal investigation so prior to 2010 and you know, many of them would have been made in the 1990s. So, uh, so that claim is, is out. <clears throat> so the question is, even if it had been allowed, there still would have been, uh, the claimants would still be making their civil sexual battery claim against Macintosh. And then if his appeal had been allowed, he would have been able to counterclaim for defamation. So effectively, the judge is still going to have to determine whether the claims were true. And what do we know so far? We know that a criminal court has already said, yes, those were true. Those, those uh, allegations really happened. And so it's difficult to see how uh, McIntosh felt that this effort to go to the Court of Appeal was going to be of much use to him. Um, if it turned out that a civil court felt, and the civil standard is balance of probabilities, not the higher standard of, standard of a criminal, uh, you know, criminal court beyond a reasonable doubt, how the civil court was going to, you know, say, uh, yes, we agree that none of this happened and therefore their statements are defamatory and have the victims end up paying Macintosh. 
I mean, that was just an unrealistic expectation on his part. Uh, so not sure how, I mean, the only explanation for having taken this step to the Court of Appeal is it buys Macintosh some time. And if maybe he doesn't have much time left, who knows what his health is like, uh, you know, he's trying to delay the judgment or delay the hearing of the civil claim and try to keep uh, whatever money he may have left um, while he's still, while he can still spend it. So anyway, uh, curious, uh, some curious reasons for Fenwick Macintosh to be making that claim, but uh, Fenwick Macintosh has been a curious individual. Okay. Last Nova Scotia case I want to talk about is Mar uh, Nargis Demolitor. While it's not really her claim this time, this is there's criminal charges against Samuel Shaji, S-H-A-J-I, who uh, Ms. Demolitor said had been running her Twitter account. Now, this was not when she was a candidate for provincial office. She was running to be the ML, one of, a PC MLA in one of the uh, urban ridings. This was when she was employed by the province as an advisor to the Minister of Immigration. All right, so that was curious in the first place that she would have somebody running her Twitter account at that stage. But this 25-year-old Samuel Shaji was apparently doing so. But then she uh, stopped having him do that, changed her password in like March or April. In September, I think it was, no, it was uh, it was after October 7th. So uh, last fall, he apparently was able to access the Twitter account, must have figured out the uh, the password in her submission, and made a, a tweet saying that uh, Israel must stop being the Nazis of the 21st century and making a, a pro-Palestinian uh, anti-Israeli tweet out of it. So that got Ms. Demolitor fired, and she has taken civil action against the, the Premier and the provincial government for having fired her. So this, I suspect, the background of this situation is that Ms. Demolitor has put pressure uh, on the Halifax Regional Police, because this is an unusual charge, all right? So Samuel Saji has been charged with personation, and that's under Section 403 of the Criminal Code, means you impersonate somebody to either your advantage or their disadvantage and that's a crime. This is a very unusual charge. You don't see this charge before the courts really ever. So that's the charge and she's obviously been able to convince the police to take this on and and you know use their limited resources to charge Saji with uh, impersonation. Really going to be useful for her civil suit now, in the civil suit, there's an interesting uh, wrinkle going on there, which is she filed the civil suit, but then uh, filed documents to uh, end. The, the province hadn't yet filed the defense, but Demolitor has uh, withdrawn her civil suit, but her lawyers have said that she's going to refile it. Unclear why. Uh, some, you know, she wants to make some change to the suit, maybe include other people. Uh, when I talked about this story a few weeks ago, I wasn't sure who her lawyers were. It wasn't included in the story, but now we do know because somebody from the firm of Levitt uh, Sheik in Toronto employed.
employment lawyers in uh, Toronto, prominent firm. This is Howard Levitt is the Levitt, and he is most recently uh, renowned. For, well, he, he writes some columns and stuff too in the papers, but he was representing Jordan Peterson in his uh, failed effort to overturn the the board of uh, psychologists on Ontario order against him. So Howard Levitt, uh, prominent employment lawyer. Uh, Maniza Sheik is the other uh, lead partner. I saw, I never, never really knew who she was, but uh, she's recently written a, a column in the Toronto Star uh, advising the NHL to uh, dump the five hockey players, the junior hockey players that have been charged out of uh, London from 2018. Saying, and I, the column, uh, really, anyway, I didn't, didn't think it was a very well-written column, frankly. Uh, aside from whatever the point she was trying to make, uh, anyway, kind of inflammatory, trying to try to get attention out of the language of it. Um, that's fine. Another uh, prominent, uh, you know, people in the Conservative Party would certainly know the name Catherine Marshall, uh, wife of Hamish Marshall, who was campaign manager and chief of staff for Andrew Shear when he was uh, leader. Uh, she's also a partner at the uh, at the law firm. Anyway, so a prominent law firm uh, certainly know what they're doing, so can expect that they'll be uh, vigorously pursuing this claim. Now, with the civil or sorry, with the criminal charge, and if it's proven, uh, certainly that helps Demolitor. Not sure it uh, wins her civil suit though, because um, you know maybe if she presented this clear evidence to the government that it wasn't her that wrote the post, and they said, well, we don't care, uh, it still looks bad, we're going to fire you, um, that, that could still go either way. Like if you're in a political position and, you know, something that's attached to you and is thus going to be attached to the government uh, looks really bad, then uh, there's, you know, there's case law that says you can, uh, you can still be fired for that reason. All right, uh, last, and we'll keep, obviously keep an eye on that story as it unfolds. There's much more to come. Last thing I want to mention uh, just quickly is this Saskatchewan school pronoun litigation, some unusual development there. All right, so the provincial government in Saskatchewan has introduced legislation that says if you're a student under the age of 16 and you want to change your pronouns, change your name at school, then your parents need to consent to that. And of course, that's very controversial. It's been, uh, you know, now in Alberta, uh, they're bringing in legislation. In New Brunswick, they're doing something as well. Most provinces are not. Uh, seems to be the better approach. But uh, anyway, so what's happening in Saskatchewan is the government, uh, you know, I guess trying to foreclose any uh, any challenge to this has used the notwithstanding clause. So thinking, okay, this may be determined to be a violation of somebody's charter rights, but we're going to institute the notwithstanding clause and cut that discussion off. Uh, not, you know, so you can, a government, provincial or federal, can institute the notwithstanding clause and say, despite this being uh, potentially a charter violation, uh, we're going to introduce legislation. Well, what does that mean for the litigation then? Because this group, UR Pride, is saying that this policy is against the charter and therefore is, uh, should be struck down. Well, 
it's a moot point now because the government has, has used the notwithstanding clause, which covers, it has to be done every five years, but still, it's, it's in place. But uh, Justice McGoss says that no, uh, even though uh, it's a steep hill to climb, that UR Pride, the, uh, the group that's advancing it, is still permitted to do so. Uh, unusual, a lot of, most of the time courts say, well, if, uh, if it's a moot point and there's no reason to, to address the issue, then we're not going to because they have lots of real cases they can decide they don't need to deal with theoretical ones. Uh, in this case, Justice McGaugh seems to think that it's important that the claim at least be advanced and the arguments be made, and so we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, the actual decision itself has not been published. I'm just looking at media articles on this, so I'd be, uh, I'll be curious to see when it is released what the actual language that Justice McGaugh uses for justifying the use of judicial resources for, uh, well, what is not a hypothetical case, there's a real case going on, but it's a moot case in the sense that the notwithstanding clause really eliminates the need for an analysis of the charter uh, compliance, uh, some would certainly say. Okay, well that's, uh, those are the cases that I thought were interesting this week that uh, I wanted to cover for you, and uh, we'll come back, like I say, next week with uh, another Another issue, the Rogers Brief, and another uh, Sunday night show. We'll get, on, uh, get back on that train next week as well. So in the meantime, thanks you everybody for listening. Uh, thank you for watching, and we'll see you next time.